0: Well, I think I've told this story here before. It's a sort of an anecdotal story, but it's about a man standing on a ledge of a bridge about to jump. And a second man runs over to him and says, Stop. Don't do it. Why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I, the jumper says. And then they have this alternating conversation, the rest of which goes like this. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Are you religious? Yes. Me too, said the man who was trying to save the jumper. Are you Christian or Buddhist or what? Yes, I can see some of you know where this is going. Um, Christian, the man says. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Me, too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God, the jumper said. Me, too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me, too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? 1915? the jumper said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. And the other man said, Die, heretic. Pushed him off the bridge. Well, Christians, it comes as no surprise, have some preposterous divisions. And these divisions create profoundly misplaced loyalties. Um, However, we might want to account for this. It's a long, tangled history, uh, much of it not edifying. Um, we live in a situation where the visible church of Christ is miserably divided. Even within congregations, right, schism and division takes root. Because of we're human beings, we have fallen hearts that are not perfectly sanctified. And we should make no mistake that this division is a scandal, which adversely affects the witness of the Church to the gospel in the earth. If we believe the testimony of Scripture, it's a situation which grieves our Lord Jesus because he prayed vigorously shortly after the gospel lesson in the next chapter in John's gospel, right? He he prays vigorously for a unity which manifests itself visibly in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, So the unity of the body of Christ is a great concern on our Lord's heart as he's moving into his passion. And so our text this morning, uh, Ephesians 4, the Ephesians, the New Testament lesson, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, it's about our unity in Christ. But it's also a very fitting Trinity Sunday text, um, not only because it speaks of the Holy Trinity, which it does, but it speaks of the Trinity in a way which is, immediately relevant, practical, um, to the life and the unity and the peace of the church. So I always try and find Trinity Sunday texts where we can connect the Trinity to where we live and move and have our being. And I think this text does that well. High theology is highly practical. And here, in this text, we have a vision of the triune Lord which touches down in the midst of congregational life. And to see that, I want to take the text out of order. Um, I want to look first at verses 3 through 6, and then go back and look at verses 1 and 2. So we'll call the two points here uh, Trinity and Unity, or Root and Fruit. The Trinity is the root, the unity is the fruit. So we'll first look at uh, how our unity is rooted in the Trinity now, in this passage, because the Apostle Paul is starting with the church, he moves in the passage from the Spirit through the Son up to God the Father. Right? From below up to above, if you will. So, the first thing he, we're going to look at here is, is in verse 3 is that the Spirit is the source of our unity. He says we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Very important to see here that the church already has, she possesses, an indestructible unity in the Holy Spirit. Right? Notice, like, we're not called to create the unity of the Spirit. It's already there. We're called to preserve it. It already exists as the gift of God. We have to keep what God has so graciously given to us. Christ has reconciled us, Paul says, just a couple chapters back in Ephesians, right? He's reconciled us from Jew and Gentile, and he's created one new man. And this this unity of the Spirit, the text says, forges a bond of peace. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It forges this bond of peace between us. And here, of course, when we speak of this peace that the Spirit brings, it's not... A cold peace, right? It's not merely the absence of hostilities. Right? Peace in the Bible is this rich, thick, beautiful, luxurious term. Shalom captures a lot of it. Harmony, well being. So, you know, concretely for us, God has established us as one body here at Westminster Church. And our own well being, our own well being, as well as the well being of our brothers and sisters depends on us earnestly endeavoring to preserve this unity and peace. Right? We, we, do, we see this every time we receive a member, right? We're all under our membership vows, which call upon us to submit to the government and the discipline of the church and to study or to seek its purity and its peace. We're all oath-bound, if you will, before God as an implication of Christian baptism, to seek after this peace, this well-being, this harmony. So, endeavoring, in some translations, to preserve this unity. In others, it's um, make every effort. Right? So, there you get the idea that we should be in haste. We should be urgent about keeping this divinely established unity because it can suffer from neglect. Um, we have to pursue peace. Peace. We have to pursue what is already ours by gift. Now, beginning in verse 4, Paul uses this, this word one. Oneness is a big theme here, unity, right? He uses the word one seven times in rapid fire succession. The first three uses are tied to the Holy Spirit. The next two to the Son, the last one to the Father. That's why this is a Trinity Trinity Sunday text. So, there is, he says, one body And one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. So that's three of them right there. So there's only one body, and this is so because there's only one spirit. I mean, think about that. The church's unity has to be. There must only be one body because there's only one Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that by that one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Same association here. One spirit, therefore, one body. We notice this in the Sunday school class on the Apostles' Creed. It's broken up into three paragraphs. One on the Father, one on the Son, one on the Spirit. And in the the third paragraph, when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the next thing is the Holy Catholic Church. The one spirit creates the one church. So it's a beautiful Picture of the Spirit as the creator of unity, as the bond of peace. As well, it says there's one hope of your calling. All of us possess the same hope. This can sometimes be obscured when Christians are arguing about eschatology, right, in the end times. But it's a very clear word. We all have the same hope, the same future inheritance. There are not two Christian hopes, or three or four Christian hopes. There's one Christian hope. Paul prayed in the opening of this letter, this book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, that God's Spirit, he said, would enlighten the eyes of your heart that you might know the hope of your calling. The hope of your calling. So one Spirit means one body, and it means one shared destiny. One hope. Which is for us, the appearance, the glorious appearance of our Lord, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's that's what Peter would call your living hope. Your heavenly inheritance. So because of the Spirit, there's one body, and that body has one hope. Secondly, we'll see here that our unity is grounded in the Son. In verse 5, we get three more. I think I said three, two, and one before, but that's not seven. It's three on the Spirit. Three on the Son, and I think one on the Father. We get three more uses of the word one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So, with our one Lord Jesus Christ, our associated faith in baptism, there's only one faith because there's only one Lord who is the object of our faith. Paul speaks of faith here. He means the body of truth. The public, accessible, you know doctrines and teachings of the Christian faith which are sealed to us in scripture he's not talking about your your personal act of faith when he says there's one faith he means there's one set of christian doctrine or belief the truth delivered once for all to the saints so there're not many faiths there can only be one right and to think otherwise is to tear christ into pieces to behave as if there are multiple christs So, one Lord, also Paul says one baptism. And the Creed says this as well, right? We believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. Now, again, it's not my purpose to unpack this here, but whatever we might say about baptism in water and baptism in the Spirit, the text makes it clear that there are not two baptisms. There's one baptism. Because in your baptism, you are by the one Spirit baptized into the one Lord. This is why baptism, once validly administered, can never be repeated. One baptism received once for all time. And the third ground of our unity in verse 6, he takes us up to the Father. One God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. One Father. God here is called the Father of all, meaning clearly the Father of all of his children. In the church, we all have a shared paternity as brothers and sisters. Right? The whole family in heaven and on earth, Paul says, derives its name from this father. So the father here, notice, is described as transcendent, but he's also pervasive. He pervades all things. And he's also imminent, meaning close or near. He's transcendent because it says he is above all. He's the all-pervading God because the text says he's through all. That's a curious phrase, right? We're used to thinking of God above all, but God is through all. I think it simply means that God works through us to reach one another. God wants to bond us to one another, if you will. He wants to fill up the spaces between us, if you will, to unite us, to knit our hearts together in love. This is why rifts or or disruptions or alienation of affections cannot be allowed to stand in the body of Christ because there's one Father who's working through us all. And finally, this God is said to be in us all. The, The one Father dwells in the one body through the one Lord by the one Spirit. And so we have this sevenfold Trinitarian unity. One spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, it's a lot to take in. (laughs) And it's really not my intention to unpack it, as I said. What I want to focus on is uh, making sure we don't forget the purpose of this really extraordinary piece of rhetoric from the Apostle that we've just heard. What's the purpose of this? Well, it's to teach us that the unity of the church, the unity of her faith, the unity of her life, her hope, that unity is grounded in the unity of the triune God. Or that unity is an expression of the unity of the triune God. And because this is true, because this is the root, then we are to bear the fruit, which is spoken of in verses 1 and 2. And so that brings us to the second point here, unity, unity, or the fruit. So in verse 1, so we're backing up a little bit in the text here, in verse 1, Paul reminds us that he's a prisoner of the Lord. I mean, this was true of him both figuratively, spiritually, if you will, and literally, right? He is in chains, he is under house arrest because of his commitment to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. As I mentioned Sunday, right, the book of Ephesians is a gift right, of God because the civil magistrate kept one of God's servants from the public worship service on the Lord's Day. So Paul made the most of the, the imprisonment and he wrote. He wrote. So he urges us in verse 2, he says, We're to walk worthy of the calling which we have received. He expects us to live worthy of this high destiny, which we have in Jesus Christ. And that destiny is face-to-face communion with the Holy Trinity in glory, with our brethren, with our brethren. So, you know, when you think about that destiny, we ought to ask ourselves ourselves, why can we allow alienation to stand on earth if we're going to be united in glory and joy and splendor with all the saints in heaven, right? So heaven is to be reflected in the earthly community, right? Let, let thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we aspire to that. And so the, the fact that our goal is communion with the Holy Trinity is a great deep motivator to reconciliation and peace, It's another way of saying that reconciliation and peace are our destiny. So let's let's bring them forth now. So this way of walking entails, Paul says, beginning in verse 2, lowliness or humility, meekness and gentleness. These are the things he names first. But, you know, humility is a virtue which was not prized in the ancient world. We've spoken about this here before, but it wasn't. They cherished the hero, you know, the, what would be called the great-souled man. The, the alpha male might be the term you might use today, right? Um, the man of bravado and exploits. Hemingway might be a good example of the Greek heroic ideal. And yet the apostle summons us to lowliness and to meekness. Virtues which, by the way, are on full display in the life of our Lord, who tells us that he was meek and he was lowly in heart. He did not cry out. He did not raise his voice in the streets to bring about justice. He said, I'm going to execute justice to the ends of the earth, to all the nations, in the weakness and in the way of the cross. So when we talk about this meekness and lowliness, Right? We're not talking about being shy, naturally shy, or, or retiring, or having a sort of you know self-effacing personality. That's not really what's in view here. Right? To to be humble is simply to live in reality. It's it's to it's to be calibrated right so that the triune God is big, thick, you know, towering in our consciousness, and we are seen for the thin, vaporizing, weak reads that we are. So humility means seeing God clearly and thus seeing ourselves clearly. No one's being asked to lie about anything in humility. Humility is a recalibration to reality. The reality of God and the reality of human existence under God. Right? And thus to see ourselves clearly. So humility is sanity. It's just sanity. And pride then, in this vision, pride becomes a form of lunacy. Right? And to the extent that it mars or effaces the unity of the church, it's sheer unity. I mean, think about it. If the, if the community of the church is rooted in, and it's the product of the community of love, which is the triune God, he's a community of light and love and peace, Right? then how grotesquely out of place How how vile an intruder is pride and arrogance in us or in the community? But we're also taught here by the addition of gentleness and meekness that a a person with humility respects and defers to others because they're gifted members of the body of Christ and we need them. They're made in the image of God. So a humble person has this quality of gentleness which considers others and their interests as greater than one's own. So again, just as you have diversity in the Godhead, three persons, so there's to be loving, uncontentious, peaceable diversity in the church. We do, in fact, celebrate diversity. The church has been celebrating diversity for 2,000 years. So, if we possess this kind of lowliness... We will be gentle and we will be mild with each other. Again, meekness here is not weakness. What does it look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. Or it can look like Paul. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. It can look like Moses. It's not meekness, but it is mildness. Right? It's, It's not weakness, but it is strength under control. Right, it's an absence of a disposition to assert one's personal rights all the time. But that's what we're looking at here, right? An absence of a disposition to constantly win the argument or assert one's rights. And that leads to an absence of a fractious or contentious spirit. This is the posture that overlooks and covers the faults of others. You know, when we read Paul here, it's clear he's aware That people rub each other the wrong way. Right? That some people aggravate others. That's why he adds patience or long suffering in some Bibles here, which is a word which brings out, you know, frankly, the note of endurance. I mean, right? Long suffering toward one another assumes the other person's going to make you suffer. (laughs) Right? Or you're going to have to suffer to engage them properly. You know, you're called, and I mean that in the most direct sense, we're called into the mystery of Christ's sufferings to love one another. And so the other person is going to call you into that mystery. You're going to call them into that mystery for a while, right? It's not just suffering, it's long suffering. Again, it's sometimes translated patience, sometimes translated endurance. And it's made explicit by the next phrase, where Paul actually says, bearing with one another in love. So we all have these foibles, and we all have our blind spots, and they're, you know, we all possess them. there They're to be endured, for sure. They are to be born. There's a kind of cross. The word for bearing there right, brings up this idea of bearing one's cross. There's a certain costliness to this. This is very, very costly stuff on the ground in the church. I mean, if everyone were an angel, there wouldn't be much to bear. There'd be no need for forbearance or for long-suffering, or for patience. But how we endure one another is critical to Paul too, right? He he says, bear with one another in love. In love, not, you know, not gritting our teeth. We want to get to the point where, where we can show loving forbearance. That's what true humility and meekness does. It bears with the other person in love. And we know that love covers a multitude of sins. A great, great multitude of sins can be covered up in love, in the love of God and Christ that we extend to one another. Love endures all things. Love never, ever fails. So it doesn't, it doesn't gossip. It doesn't subtly undermine the other. It's a gift from the Trinity who is love, who is a communion of love. And so we want to get to the point where that love flows down into us and then blesses the other. In the face of all of the natural and sometimes justified aggravations that can exist, this love recalls the abundance of free grace and blessing that has been lavished upon us in the face of our many provocations by the triune God himself in his great love for you. So it turns out the Trinity is really important. These are some of the reasons. A good deal, I would suggest, of our unhappy divisions, they stem precisely from this root of of pride, of a lack of true humility and, and love and forbearance. But we tend to think that all of our divisions are righteous. All of them stem from doctrinal matters of high import. Right? That the gospel is at stake in every little thing and that we have to die on this hill. There are people wired this way, especially in our tradition. And to be sure, some matters are that important. There's no doubt about that. There is a time to sever. <laughs> Yet when Paul opens up this topic, right, it's our hearts that he highlights. He probes deep down into our own sinfulness. So I don't think I'd be wrong if I guessed that a large number of church splits could be explained in terms of just these couple verses. I read one story about a minister whose church split, and it ended up in the church courts, and it was revealed after a review that the whole thing started at a church dinner. When a man received a smaller slice of ham than the child who was seated next to him. It's funny, but it's not funny, right? I mean, it seems almost impossible to believe this. But improperly handled small irritations can lead us to much, much bigger problems. Many of our divisions begin, right, not in some noble defense of the truth. They begin in the depths of our own petty hearts. They begin with a lack of forbearing love, a lack of meekness, and a lack of humility. And I think also in the midst of these kinds of things, these little church battles that go on, these little acts of disintegration, it's unlikely, right, that the life of the Holy Trinity is the object of much attention while this is going on. Usually someone just decides they're taking a righteous stand, and the other one's wrong, and you have a battle, and yeah, they both believe in God, but, that, but the actual Trinity in, in, in the glory of the being of God tends to drop out of sight. Right? In the heat of battle... The sevenfold Trinitarian unity, one spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, over all, through all, and in all, in the heat of battle, all of this drops out of sight. And the issue at hand becomes enormous, so big that it eclipses the triune God. So in closing, let me make a provocative statement, but one which I think the structure of this text bears out. All failures of charity are failures of Trinitarian theology. And I don't mean theology in the abstract intellectual sense. I mean a living, breathing, pulsating union with the triune God. Because the Trinity is the fount of all charity. Right, It's the ground and the source of the church's unity. And if we cut ourselves off from the root, we will not bear the fruit. Well, we, we, can, we can be certain that if we cut ourselves off from communion, from focused attention on the life of the triune God, again, not the life of God in general, but the life of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace and love and light and mutual enjoyment, the Father pouring himself into the Son and the Son pouring himself back into the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit for all eternity, that kind of self-giving life of communion, which is God's own life, a people focused on that are going to have a difficult time going around being fractious with one another. And so it's very important Paul beseeches us from his apostolic chains to preserve to manifest the unity which is ours in the one body of Christ. Now this doesn't mean there has to be one visible church organization But it does mean there has to be humility and meekness and forbearance. Make every effort, the apostle says. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Right? we're about to come partake of the supper. But even if we weren't, we would still be called to end any estrangement between us and brothers and sisters. It's a sad thing. When you find out there's these little fissures and these little fractions, uh, you know, fracturings, these divisions, and they last for years in the body of Christ. And people somehow find a way to come to the supper every every time. But we must not do that. We must go and be reconciled to our brother and, and, you know, encourage them to be uh, reconciled to us, right? We have to seek that. In Francis' words, St. Francis' very famous words, many of you know them, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hate, may I bring love. Where there's offense, may I bring pardon. May I bring union in the place of discord. Of course, he's just drawing on our Lord, who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, on this Trinity Sunday, we want to pray. That God grants us grace to walk in a manner worthy of our glorious calling, worthy of that sevenfold Trinity, Trinitarian unity, which is both our root and the source of our fruit. There is one Spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Glory be to the triune God. Amen.